really love these chapters. I'd forgotten because I haven't read the Ironborn chapters in a, in a very long time. And uh, yeah, this one was really, really good. You guys haven't read the Winds of Winter Ironborn chapters yet, have you? Uh, I have. So you read the uh, the Forsaken, and uh, there's a there's a partial Victorian chapter there as well. But I know Hannah Victorian's not your favorite character to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to read from. But I love him. I think he's just the the funniest dumb guy that you can ever get his perspective on. You heard the Forsaken get read out loud. Yeah, we were at Baltic. Oh, that's right. Yeah. How could I forget that? Yeah, you, you, were, you were there. We were in the same room. We were. That was an excellent chapter. I really like the way that George reads chapters too. It's it's very, uh, almost like kind of, perf- oh. if, he, if you could make a, a public reading of performance art, I think he does a really good job of, so good. of that. It's like one of those things where you like wish that time would just stand still and he can just read to you oh, for forever. Sure. <laughs> How cool that while we all wait patiently for Winds of Winter, George R. R. Martin, when he appears at fan conventions, takes time out to give an interpretive reading of one of these chapters that we've been waiting so fondly for. George R. R. Martin at cons rocks. Like he's the ultimate con person. He he's and and you if you ever read his blog, like he's all about he talks about cons a lot. He talks a lot about world con is that that's his big one, but um uh, Balticon, I think, was probably his best one from the last year. He didn't go to that many last year because he was trying to finish wins. Right. How'd that work out? Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> really well. George has a full rookery right now of all the ravens I've sent him about Con of Thrones. Oh, man. Do tell. I, it would be great to have him because it it's going to be really so exciting awesome in Nashville. Him there. Yeah. He's busy. Have you guys reached out to him at all or anything? Or Not officially, but I know that he, he wants to focus on writing the book, so I figured I just wouldn't bother him. Well, I mean... I guess you can reach. I, the thing is, he is turning down a lot of conventions nowadays. But uh, in the event, in the unlikely event, or likely, whatever you want to put it, he ends up finishing the book. Uh, he will probably start attending cons again. Right. Well, we can only hope that that would happen before the next season and before Con of Thrones. That would be an exciting time for us all to come together. And there's going to be a lot to process next summer with the new season and, and the possibility. I know that we've been speaking recently just through text about all the winds of winter. I wouldn't really call it news. What would you call it? Just speculation on behalf of of ideas that have come specifically from the stuff that George has said in his journal that news outlets have picked up and kind of spread around and began stoking the fire again. What, do, what, what is your take on all this? Because I know that for the most part, you've been a pretty regular part of contributing to other publications that aren't Game of Thrones fan sites for your ideas and input. It's it's weird to me to, to see news articles, major news news sites like Time Magazine and The Atlantic and all these these different outlets pick up uh, not a blog comments, which which is funny to me given that it's it's like the 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 the, um, the apex of kind of like nerddom, you know, because you all these people are hanging on George's every word now, and they're all, they're hanging on his comments now, saying when. They, when he thinks the Winds of Winter is going to be out, he said, you know, as infamously, he thought that he was going to get the book out before season six. And now he's at this point where he's like, well, I think I can get out this year. So uh, let's let's at my perspective is it's it's great. I hope he does get it out this year. Um, I certainly am on Team George and believe that if he doesn't get out this year, that's OK. Um, and, I, and I know different I, different people are going to have different opinions about whether, you know, the books should get out this year. But I. I whether whether George should absolutely push to get out this year, whether I'd be disappointed if they if it didn't come out, I don't think I necessarily would. I I, I hope, and so far the sample chapters like the like the Forsaken have indicated to me that the amount of time that George has put into the books means that we're going to get a really good book when it actually comes out. Um, and then George's perspective has always been that you know it doesn't matter when the books come out, so long as 
they're good. So he's looking at kind of the 20, 30, 40 year perspective as opposed to us as fans. We're looking at it from the, uh, you know, when is this book going to come out? Is it going to come out this year or next year or the year after that? Um, and I think he's, he's tended to see it, his, his work of fiction as being, um, is his masterpiece, the thing he'll be remembered for most in his entire life. He'll never have that. Uh, he'll, he'll never be a small time fiction author anymore because of the popularity of a song of ice and fire and the popularity of game of Thrones. Um, and that's, 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 that's pretty heavy stuff when you think about it in terms of, um, how people perceive him. Cause he has all this hype to live up to. And if he feels like he's producing a subpar work, then it's going to seem disappointing in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know a lot of people were disappointed with the feast for crows and a dance with dragons. I, I don't feel that disappointment. I've, in fact, those two books are probably my favorite books, A Dance with Dragons uh, being my favorite of the two, but combining them in A Feast with Dragons is just, you know, gobstoppers. It's great. You know, it's 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 so much fun to to get into this whole joined work um, that Martin has put together. And he's, he wrote these books in the course of, you know, 10 years or so, maybe a little bit towards 11 years. Um, so I, I, I I'm, I'm excited to to see what George brings from the, from the winds of winter. And I sure hope he gets it out this year, but if he doesn't, I won't be that upset or, or, or disappointed. I think he's waiting for us to finish this read through. Honestly. That, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a good exactly point. What's, you know? what's going on. You'll have it's a good 70 possible. chapters at the end of your a feast with dragons uh, read to, to go through, to plow through from the winds of winter. I'm really happy with uh, how it's gone so far. I think it was the end of 2015 when we came together, you included to, make this reading order half for the podcast, half for ourselves, the other half for uh, other people that might be interested in another look at putting these two books together. It's been a really fun ride. Oh, it has. It's It's, it's been a blast. It's, it, when The times I've been with you guys, I've really enjoyed your guys' takes on these chapters. Um, I, th- I think you guys bring a really fresh perspective into evaluating these chapters, even if you don't really like, you know, like Hannah last week didn't like the Victorian chapter, which I think is fine, but I think you brought a lot into um, into like delving into the chapter and talking about the different uh, facets of the chapter in ways that a lot of fans haven't necessarily touched on, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I feel really lucky that we have that opportunity. And I've said this before, but I haven't always loved, I didn't always, I didn't love like A Feast for Crows that much when I went through it the first time. And it took me a long time to appreciate a lot of what's happening in both A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons. And this has given me the opportunity and I think the listeners and everybody who's been reading along an opportunity to really slow down and say, hey, like, this is some great stuff in here. It's just good. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, just like it, losing my train of you're thought. You're right. But <laughs> because I feel the same way. When I read A Feast for Crows, I really uh, was not too high on it. And I liked A Dance with Dragons, particularly because I thought that it brought us back to the characters that we were most familiar with. And as I'm going through it, I'm doing this reread. And it's combined order. It just—it's so much different, and I just—I just have a completely different perspective on these chapters and and the characters and the story and so many things that I have forgotten about. I think we've all, for those of us who've read it, uh, you know, a while back, you know, even with this first chapter in the Drowned Man. I'm I'm so disappointed that this didn't happen on TV. Me too. I know. I know. We have a great pair of chapters today, one taking place on the western coast or beyond the western coast at the Iron Islands of Westeros and the other on the eastern coast at White Harbor. And they're both, I don't want to say sea themed because that doesn't, 
That's it's not grand enough for the amount of of time and care and intellect that George puts into the descriptions of where these chapters are taking place. It feels like a nautical themed fantasy book, and it's mixed in with all the other geographies and families and plot lines that we experience in places that have to tell a different story because that's where they're grounded. They have to tell a different kind of story. But here we have tables that were fabled to be shaped like starfishes. We have knights that are patrolling inside of a castle instead of carrying spears. They're carrying tridents. I know. It's it's really cool. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that I had read somewhere that part of the reason why George R. R. Martin wrote this way is one because he's really good at it but because he was sick of the fact that he was so restricted by television writing and so this really with a song of ice and fire and with some of his other works that i've read he just kind of had the opportunity to go wild and i could just be completely butchering that but i feel like that's you can definitely see that in these two chapters well he's he said that he wrote a song of ice and fire to escape television land because he was he was writing in television um all the way up until uh he started writing game of uh, game of thrones mm-hmm. in, in earnest and he was a television writer that's where he got to start his, his career in television writing and uh he ended up um he ran a pilot for this show called doorways which i don't think anybody ever really has, has ever watched or anything like that but there are there is a pilot available if, if anybody wants to watch it but uh, he wrote he he wrote a song of ice and fire because he wanted to get out of that whole mindset of of writing television, writing these kind of episodic type uh, type of things to, that he wrote, so he could write these very expansive novels where you have the drowned man, you have the perspective of a of a well crazy person really, and and Aaron Dampier um, thinking about his religion and having this massive thing that's basically unfilmable. I mean, the, the Game of Thrones season six did try to film the King's mood as, as it happened, but I, like the description that he has of all the thousands of banners waving and all the horns blowing and the drums beating. It needed a motion picture budget for this. Mm-hmm. It needed like $150 million motion well, picture even budget down yeah. to in order to film this We correctly. get like damp hair, the way he talks about throwing his robe on him and it's weighed down by the crusty saltiness of it. Just the opportunity that we have to really get into the detail that are both grand and small to build out this world is really, really incredible. And I think that, yeah, we, we've we tried and I think that the show has done its best with what it's got. But um, there's something about being in the details that ev- I mean, I, I feel like I say this every episode, but I just am blown away, especially these last two books that we've got in the series so far with just how much incredibly rich detail there is and what a cool opportunity we have to play in it. Yeah. We don't even need that to increase the grandeur of the King's mood. It's already awesome knowing that it's happening. It's already awesome knowing that it's happening and it hasn't happened in a very, very long time. But adding in the family conflict, adding in the history location and getting the story of the mythical creature Nagas that were once settled in that same location eons ago and the plight of their, I, I guess you could call it royal court that eventually would lead to, you know, the same sands that the Greyjoys are battling for kingship, leadership. And just a heads up before we get too far into discussion, we touch on some of the sample chapters from A Winds of Winter a little bit in the first half of our discussion. So if you don't want to be spoiled on anything that George R. R. Martin has released concerning Winds of Winter, then I recommend skipping uh, to the second half of the episode. 
I think this chapter was the the drowned man was a really cool chapter because, like I said, it's it's basically getting into the head of someone who's who's clearly not all there. He he's he's the Aaron Dampier, we Like we you learn his first chapter about how he drowned and was saved by the drowned god during the during the Great Joy Rebellion when that when he fought against Stannis and, and something has changed about him and you could see like this. I, I, it's hard to like kind of crystallize, but you see this real. Um, obliviousness to reality, I guess is, is the way I want to put it, that he has these really grand hopes and desires that Victarion is going to become um, the Salt King and is going to sit the, uh, the the sea stone chair. But but you, I, it really feels like an elaborate setup about how Victarion's going to going to sit the iron, uh, not the iron throne, but rather the sea stone chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you see like all these kind of. Uh, Weak uh, claimants coming up and coming forward. Uh, the one guy who's being carried by all of his sons and who's 88 years old. And you're like, okay, well, you know, now Victorian's going to be, um, it's clear that he's going to be able to take the, the sea stone chair. But uh, I, that the guy with Euron sitting, standing right there on the sidelines the entire time, it's really interesting to me how weak Victorian's claim ends up being, how he's built up to be this guy. Aaron builds him up to be this guy who's going to, um, be able to very present a very plausible case for his kingship, and he he doesn't really at all. No, he he basically says more of the same, um, and then Asha says we should just hold what we've got, and Euron's like just you know not none of the none of the above. We can take the entire, we can take all of Westeros, all the Seven Kingdoms, all these cities, and we could take with dragons, which is a crazy idea, but it 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 has an appeal, and I and I think we we can see that in some of our modern political context too, how grand um, statements by political leaders tend to have grand appeal, even if they're completely unfeasible. Mm-hmm. But in Euron's case, perhaps <laughs> it might be feasible. I was quite disappointed in Victorian's claim and just how he thought that more of the same was going to be what people were going to rally around. And, That's and why it he sucks. seemed to work. <laughs> for a period of time there until Asha stepped in and I thought really undercut her uncle and probably did, well, definitely did more harm than good. I, I thought that we were going to see a potential alliance and I know there was an opportunity for that. Was it the last chapter that we read or two chapters ago? Again, there was disappointment because I, I felt that, and and a lot of the blame falls on Victorian because he doesn't even He's not even willing to listen to what uh, Asha has to say. But to me, the, the, the crow's eye stepping in at the end of this chapter and just saying, oh, we're going to conquer everything with dragons. And these people just believe him. I, I don't I don't get it. Like, uh, yeah, it sounds great. It sounds cool. But what's the appeal? Like, uh, and, and what makes you think that he's going to be successful where you know, others have failed previously. I, I mean, does the horn blowing, like, did he get inside their heads and like, just make them all vote in his favor? I don't know. You got to think about the context. It's mob psychology turned up to 11, especially when the horn starts blowing because Victorian, he put a little bit of spice into different captains of different sizes, claiming different things. And everyone knew the main event was coming. Crozai was standing to the side the whole time with his arms folded across his chest. And Aaron is inside of his own head. And he's sort of silently cursing the other men that are coming up. And in his religious state, which is driving this whole chapter forward, he 
he assumes that they're all sort of like side stories, wrong paths to what the drowned god wants in his favor. There was the the one captain that said he was going to lead them all into a great island in the sea. I forget the the exact legend. It's Farwin, Gilbert Farwin. Yeah, right. And that's that perspective. I mean, that's that's left field. We thought that when Victorians stood up and started talking about more of the same, that people would shrug that off a little bit. We had, you know, they're treating the king's moot sort of like the it, it sort of passively turned into the same kind of speeches that would have been made of old. They probably were the, of the same uh, vigor. They probably have just been amplified over time to seem more interesting. But this particular king's moot, I think, with Asha standing up and completely putting Victorian's awesome stump speech, which was so blunt and devoid of character. I think he ends it with, that's all I have to say. And everyone's cheering and going crazy. She steps out and she just dumps out pine cones. She dumps out pebbles. She dumps out turnips to represent the wealth of Winterfell and puts him in his bed. But when, when Crow's Eye stands up, man... There's that a reverence horn, about that him. horn blowing, you know, it, it lasted as long. They, uh, the quote, I forget exactly, but George says, until they thought it would never end, that's when it ended. The, the sound of the, the, just the volume and the, the, the scope of the wavelengths George writes about them bouncing off the mountains of Old Wick and filling all of the wet places of the world. Yeah, they're, I think that it was hard not to be stuck in his reverie. <laughs> um, so this is my question that I have. I was thinking this whole time is, Micah, you alluded to the fact that Asha kind of came to Victarion and said, hey, let me be your hand, essentially, and let's do this together. And he dismisses her. Um, Do you think that the outcome would have been different if the two of them had been united? Or do you think that Euron's draw is strong enough to push any other candidate out of the out of the frame? Do you think that the vote was split or that Euron just kind of takes everybody's attention away from anything else. Well, it's interesting, not not to make it too much of a political, uh, in, a, in a modern political context, but there is this whole idea, if you guys remember from the, uh, the Republican primary of this kind of never Trump movement, where people thought, well, we can just unite around a different candidate and we'll be okay. But nobody could really find a, a, a uniting candidate in order to unite against um, Trump. What happens with Ash and Victorian is very similar, where you have two people that probably do have the um they have the support to um and the wherewithal and the wherewithal too to to take the the seastone chair with one supporting the other but they can't see past their own i don't want to call it selfishness necessarily but uh they can't see past their their own um it's like their vision is way more narrow than neurons Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's myopic really i mean these guys are all thinking that they're uh, that they're going to they can they can claim it by themselves, but they really not, they really can't. You have to have allies in order to win, you know, a throne, and that's really tough because there's no real allies for themselves. You know, right. they, they have to they're they're allies in and of themselves, and that's all they have, and that's it, it. Really, kind of crushes their their ability to 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 win for themselves and, and win for each other and prevent Euron from taking the Seastone chair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Zach, you you mentioned this already, but Victorion essentially says. The quote is, he says, all you'll get from me is more of what you got from Balon. That's all I have to say. I think he kind of rolls up because we get from the perspective of Aaron that he's been, he's blessed by him. And I think that he just thinks that he's got this in the bag is kind of the way that I read this. He waits until the right moment to stake his claim. And he kind of waits for people to be out of the way so that he can actually say something real. Um, and I think that that 
is also a fault that he kind of brings to this is that he thinks that he's got this without really having anything to show for it. He's like Stannis in a way. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just like, to me, their characters are very similar and and stubborn. Yeah, they're stubborn. I think they believe that they have a claim to power. And what I was going to say in response to your to your question, Hannah, though, is it's it's hard to know if they had a line, if there would have been a difference. And really, at the core, I mean, Asha, she delegitimizes Victorian hard. And it, yeah, and and I th- I don't I think a, a, another question you could ask is if she doesn't step in. And, you know, she remains neutral and she doesn't go for him or go against him. What happens then? Mm-hmm. You know, is the crow's eye still able to come along and to convince all of these people? I'm not fully confident in the fact that he has convinced all these people willingly. That still is, is a question in my mind. And we talked about in the last episode, he spent a lot of time out east and I'm not sure what he knows and what he can do and how he can influence people. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah. Here's a, here's a question for you guys. Where do you think he got the horn that his, uh, his minion blew in order to win, in order to start the process of winning the King's boot? Did he actually get it from Valyria or did he, is it just did he get the, it from uh, somewhere near a shy or further East? Was or? it a grand claim that he, that he made in order to, to make it sound authoritative or was there, where exactly did the horn come he from and how himself. did he, did he plunder the smoking <laughs> sea? Like, did he go into old Valyria? Is that your question? Yeah. Yeah. Is this, is there any truth to what he's saying? What or is he think? just making Do you think these... he actually went there or he got it somewhere out East? I, I don't think he went to Valyria. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting tactic that he uses though because it gives him this kind of magical implement that he can then be like well look at me you know i've you have victorian who get you get more of the same you get asha who's going to settle for some sort of peace but me i have this i have magic on my side right i'll give you everything that you can imagine because i have this horn and we're going to grab these dragons uh it's very uh, interesting to me i uh, there's a there's a really cool theory out there on on where the horn came from and if, and if you go back to you have to go back to a storm of swords and talk about Daenerys at the end of her chapters, uh, her very last chapter. I think she's told that the warlocks from Karth are out for her blood, essentially, or is it one of her first chapters from a dance of dragons? I might be getting that a little confused. Um, there's, there's this idea out there in the, in the fandom that, uh, you're on Greyjoy, that the warlocks set sail from Karth to go and try and bind Danny's dragons with this great horn that they had. And that you're on Greyjoy being this guy who's out East already uh, out East ends up intercepting their ship, capturing their ship, torturing and um, gaining information about the warlocks and taking the horn from these uh, from these warlocks and then being able to use that as this kind of dragon binding horn. But he makes up this grand story to to win over the Ironborn, which I think is is an interesting uh, it's interesting optics and interesting tactics when it comes to the the political side of it. But I really like the idea that Euron is is uh, is a grand liar uh, who uh, really doesn't hasn't been to Valyria. It makes up these grand stories about himself and uh, is successful because the, the lies are so bold, which has similar modern day political context as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think if if that's true and his claims are not as grand? What is that the implications from the Forsaken or from, you know, future thoughts of the kind of story that Euron's going to be crafting for himself? Like, how do you think that that affects it and 
where does his story go from here, knowing that he's basically operating on farce to win over mortals? It's 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 a really it's a really open question as as far as I, I I'm concerned. In the in the Forsaken, um, he he shows up at the end of the chapter with uh, um, Valyrian steel armor, which is the first time you ever actually see that. So it's this jet black it's bananas. Armor. I think about, I think about yeah. that every day. Yeah, I'm not the, exaggerating. the idea of it is bananas. Well, it, and you have to it, to get a full picture of it. What how George describes Euron in that chapter is that he's wearing a full set of black steel of black Valyrian steel armor, and he's crowned himself with this what. How, how is it? I mean, Hannah might be able to remember this better than me, but I think it was like this crown with like shark teeth at the top of it, sort of thing, to kind of get that full picture. And you and you have to imagine him with the eye patch on and everything to kind of get this really strong, vivid picture. And you could see why that type of thing would appeal to this very militant, warlike culture mm-hmm. that the Ironborn have. Uh, you know, he's he's a fierce dude. You know, there's there's no doubt that that Euron's a fierce dude. But he's also a super evil guy, too. I mean, as as we'll find out in, in the coming chapters about your great joy. I just I think that he's got this swagger about him that draws people to him. I mean, he's comparing himself to Aegon the Conqueror and he's talking about dragons. And especially after this horn being blown, whether we know what it really is or where it actually came from or what it can or can't do. I mean, after something like that, after feeling the way that they all felt as the horn stops and then he climbs up the hill slowly and he promises everything, um, even Air, even Dan Parrott for a moment, it says for half a heartbeat, he was swept away by the boldness of his words. So even he can't help but, you know, his heart's racing and like he's listening to all these promises being made. And so I just think that... I think that regardless of who else is at this King's Moot, who else is trying to vie for this, it doesn't matter. I just think that Euron Greyjoy has this commanding presence about him that can't be beat by anybody else currently on the Iron Islands. So Asha and Victarion or Vic, need, they need theme music, <laughs> right? They need theme music to walk out to? They did. That would have helped. It might have. <laughs> it really might have. Have you guys have you guys listened to the audiobook for uh for a Feast for Crows where uh Roy Detrice actually reads the he actually does the whole the horn thing yeah. he tries to uh, Oh no way. Yeah. <laughs> it's unsettling. It's very loud. It is very loud and it goes on for a very long and uh, unsettling period of time. It's 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 funny. <laughs> Just as I thought uh, it was never gonna end it it ended and he went on to the next sentence. Yeah. And then it blew again. And then it, it blew it, again. It blows and then it, he he has a sentence and then it blows again and, and Roy Detrice does this really long sort of sound. So this isn't the horn of winter. Because some people think it's the horn of winter. Probably not. If it is the Horn of Winter, then our reading order is totally off whack because the wall's down <laughs> right after this chapter. <laughs> Unless Sam's it's probably. No? You think so? I think so, too. I think Sam has it. It would make sense for Sam to have that. Well, I don't know, but I don't I don't think so. Or maybe it's an old town. I don't think he has the horn either. I think he has uh, a, a, not a fake horn, but a, but a different horn that Mance Raider thought was the horn of winter but wasn't actually the horn of winter i think the others have the horn of winter damn it that would suck i think that they probably do it's 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 interesting to me i i, I do wonder how uh, this is t- tangential but I, I do wonder how the wall will come i i'm assuming that the wall is going to come down in, in season seven i haven't read any spoilers for season seven yet so i've been trying to stay spoiler free this time again but it seems very likely that the wall is on its way to uh to collapse in season seven and in the winds of winter too, I think my long thought idea was that um, 
the others would blow the actual horn of winter and would collapse the wall and that would be the way they get south of the wall but the the show is kind of eschewed kind of the um or rather skewed the um uh the, these kind of this whole discussion of horns that that george spends a mm-hmm. fair amount of time describing and and giving a lot of depth to and a lot of detail which seems to me to indicate to me that they're very important in in the, in the published narrative i'm thinking in the show that we're not going to see that. I think the the wall is going to come down differently. It'll be Bran, right? That's yeah, what I was going to say. Comes Don't you guys wall? think the real yeah. question is, is how is it's going to be Bran's fault? Yeah, that's yep. exactly what I think it is. And so I think that that may play out a little bit differently when we read it um, in the text. But man, every time I think about the wall coming down, I just like get chills. I can't. How do you think people felt reading this chapter for the first time and hearing the bold claims of Euron Greyjoy or... I mean, you guys know this because we saved the further reading until we were caught up for the show, or at least some of us did. (laughs) (laughs) You? Uh, It wasn't fun. Anyway, how do you think people felt when they read Euron for the first time? And this wasn't the first time we saw him, but this was the first time that he spoke to a mass of people after a Valyrian horn that had runes that would heat up and give blisters to the guy that blew it and later do what it does to the guy that blew it. How do you think, mm-hmm. to me, it feels like sort of a Melisandre giving birth to a shadow baby moment where everything's just kind of different after that. I think it may depend on your perspective of the other characters, like how you view Victorian, Hannah, how you view <laughs> Asha, <laughs> In in because I think it's all relative, right? When you're when you're reading these chapters, sure, this is this is coming from the perspective of of damp air. But it, even with the Victorian chapter, we all said it was more about Asha. It was more about Euron. It was you. Know, I to me, it depends what your feelings are towards these other characters because you could look at Euron with a foreboding type of nature, or you could look at him and say he's a badass pirate dude that is going to stir some shit up. And I kind of like that. So it's just another mystery to have to try unravel in this story. And, and maybe this horn does really control dragons and maybe he's going to meet up with Daenerys and there's going to be some problems there. Who knows? But that's just, my two cents. It's hard to believe that the horn is bullshit when some of our characters can dream their way into the minds of wolves. Yeah. Right. And that was another yeah. thing about this chapter, though, that um, struck me was that this grouping of, of Ironborn were so willing to believe in dragons where in other chapters. This next chapter. Read, and in the next chapter. Yeah. They're just completely dismissive of, oh, grumpkins, snarks, dragons, you know, the the usual line that we hear from people who don't believe about anything that exists beyond the wall. And yet here you have sort of this really hardened group of people who are ready to just jump on board. And it was complete contrast. It's interesting about that. I, I think when I first read the books, when I first read A Feast for Crows, and this is probably 2012 was when I first read the book, that particular book. When I came to Euron as a character and, and the Ironborn culture as a whole, I didn't exactly gravitate towards it because it felt like it felt at the time like a distraction from mm-hmm. the characters that I really wanted to hear about, which were Tyrion, John, Daenerys, um, and some of the other characters, Bran, Arya, Barrison. those types of characters. Barrison, which we don't even... <laughs> 
but it, it felt it felt very distracting um, at the time because it felt like it was just like like why are they introducing this guy so late? Yeah. It feels th- this culture is is so alien and really unappealing. Like there's nothing really about the Iron Lord that I go, wow. There's you can really uh, understand why these people act the way that they do. With the perspective of reading it a couple ch- a couple times now and and understanding the Ironborn, I think what George is doing here and introducing Euron and and introducing this Ironborn culture is introducing kind of what I would consider to be almost end game type villains. So you have characters like Joffrey in books one to three, and you have characters like Ramsay and Bruce Bolton who you know have existed in in various forms but haven't really emerged until the end of a clash of kings and it really into into a dance with dragons um but you're on something completely different he's a villain that's using magic which is really kind of frightening if you think about it because it exists outside the rational like joffrey is was an irrational and psychopathic kid but he wasn't going to be able to like pull out a horn of winter and be able to just wreck shit you know, right. He, right. he had limitations, but Euron is almost unlimited in terms of the amount of damage and evil he can do in the world that he inhabits. And I think given that perspective and being able to read this chapter and the following Ironborn chapters a few times, I, I really start to gravitate towards Euron because I'm like, this is a really interesting um, wrinkle that George adds into it. And the Ironborn culture as a whole, while is still completely unappealing to me, but I, I understand it and I really a- appreciate the context, it almost feels, if you guys watch the show like Vikings or um, The Last Kingdom, very much like a, a, almost a Viking or a Danish culture that George is trying to depict here. Very warlike, very tribal. Um, every every captain is a king on his own ship. I, I find those concepts really uh, fascinating. Don't They don't appeal to me personally, but I find them fascinating that George drew them out in The Ironborn. Um, and now you have a character like Euron who's able to exploit that culture for some pretty nefarious means and methods. And the geographies make sense. The fact that these cultures would exist beside one another, it makes sense. And what they're doing to operate within each other's means and to gain which power, resources that they want for themselves, a future that they want for their people, for themselves. I, in my opinion, it all operates culturally sound. It makes sense. And that's one of the reasons why it's so exciting to meet them this late into the story. For me, it was just cementing the lessons that George taught us in the books early. If you read a Game of Thrones, it's a much more narrow perspective. You're basically Starks and Lannisters, Starks and Lannisters, Daenerys, Starks and Lannisters. But the world that we're living in and the story that we're being told, there's a lot of players that led to a lot of different means and there's a lot of people that that made this a reality. And then we start to go on the eve some and understand how it all works together and we hear lessons of the past and we're told how it all works together. But now you know, in the fourth book, it's it's a true branching out of people that are mentioning someone like Daenerys, someone that's very important, someone that we assume is going to have a large role in what happens in the future. These guys have their own plan for Daenerys. And since it's in the book, maybe folks would ignore it and say it feels like a distraction. But to me, it feels like a threat. And it feels like, well, this is exactly what would happen in Westeros because this is the world that George built. They're not going to happily coast into whatever finish line and just have to fight the bad guy. There's probably going to be other bad guys on the way that want to you know, jump on the bandwagon of what they're up to. Mm-hmm. I think that my perspective has changed quite a bit. I, I think about, though, all of those things that we're saying about how he's this incredibly endgame type evil villain my issue the first time i read through which my perspective has changed a little bit but that he seemed very much more larger than life than anybody else and so you know we're talking about how he is seemingly untouchable and when you talk about a full suit of valyrian armor um i don't know 
what or how we can go up against that. But a problem that I had with this in the beginning is the fact that we are introduced to this group of people that we don't know that much about. And then we get this guy that's just super evil and terrible. And he seems almost, I don't want to say cartoon-like because I think that that dismisses everything that George has built up until this point. But I just felt like he was this larger than life unnecessarily larger than life character. And I think that my perspective on that has changed quite a bit since I have learned more about the Iron Islands and learned more about him and and read through these chapters a bit more. But I, I can see why there's a struggle in when he decides to, George decides to assert these characters and um, what their role is going to be in the end game. And I think that it's very obviously naive of us to dismiss any of this out of hand. And I think that um, we should obviously be make, paying attention. I think that there's going to be an important role to play when we get to the last chapters of A Song of Ice and Fire. But to be this far along in the story and to be thrown this in our face when we've got so much other, other things to be worrying about, I think is at first a tough thing to grapple with. And I agree. also, if you're going to compare it to the selection of the Lord Commander, right? When John becomes Lord Commander, because that was one of the first things that kind of jumped into my mind. To your point, Hannah, at least those people, we have a little bit more context on who they are. And we spent a lot of time with John mm-hmm. and Sam and others at the wall. With these characters, we don't know anything about them. Or and where they fit I, I agree necessarily. With yeah. I think that's another key point is where do they fit into the overall story? Because even going back to the Victorian chapter that we had last week, they're mentioning all these families and you're just getting this sense of the depth of the families that, that live in this part of the world and you you just they're not names that you're overly familiar with and and you could probably spend a whole nother seven books just learning about them and and where they came from and and what their families are significant for or maybe some of them aren't as significant and they all have stories so it, yeah i i definitely agree with you so this is your on gray joy stepping up and saying it could be more of the same it could be peace and allegiance and we could go down as the Greyjoys and all the other families that surround and live and breed on the Iron Islands. Or I could speak beyond my station and have a grand idea, throw our hats into the ring and put us right in the center of the conflict because stuff's going down. And there's a possibility that we could rise up and be greater than ever. What is that may never die? What, what is dead may, may never die? die? What is dead may never die? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's been a while like Iron Man culture. So. so who knows if Yaron is as good as he thinks he is? George. George, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm buying it, though. I'm buying all of it. It's really going to be fascinating to see what the direction that George takes with Yaron. I mean, I, there's a lot There's a lot of theories out there about him. But the uh, the one the one kind of fly in this whole ointment, though, is is a character that you guys have read about in uh, um, so far. You've, you've had two chapters from the perspective of Reek. But Theon is still out there. Mm-hmm. So, Bale and Greyjoy does have a living heir of, of whatever sort of a status and state that he's in. But it's uh, that's definitely a fly in the, in the ointment for Euron is that he thinks uh, that uh, he, he can be elected king when, in fact, he might not be able to be elected king. There's a possibility the whole thing might 
be thrown out as illegitimate. The Kingsman might be thrown out as illegitimate because if if Theon reemerges, then uh, there's a. I mean, the, he he he'll end up setting it aside. Yeah. yeah. That's true. That's a great point. I just don't see Theon. I, it's hard. It's tough for me to imagine, especially at this point in the story, for understandable reasons. Theon being any true threat, even in Theon's prime, to someone like Euron. I know that. I know that we take into consideration the way that li- the line of secession would go, but I still have a hard time seeing Theon rolling up to anywhere on the Iron Islands and anybody really necessarily listening to what he has to say. Mm-hmm. Well, he might. Th- the thing about him is that it might not be that they'll listen to what he says, but they might use him as sort of a um, uh, a projection of their own power to say, like, hey, look, this whole thing was it was illegitimate. Here's here's Balon's son right now. And, and I think you'll get a little bit more perspective of how that might unfold in some some future Ironborn chapters. So I don't want to talk too much in depth right. about yeah. it. But there. Yeah. But but Theon is out there. And I think he's his him being out there is important for how. Um, this might play out with Euron. Do we think that White White Harbor is under threat of possible Greyjoy invasion now that Euron Greyjoy has taken the mantle? All the Westeros is under threat. I say bring it on. I'm really excited. One thing that I want to mention, I know we're trying to a lovely transition there, but I did want to mention, <laughs> good. which Thank we you. haven't yet, the uh, rusted, rusted Iron Hinge, which I know we don't have a lot of answers to at this point, um, but I think it's worth saying that that's something that we get dropped in again um that last passage was ridiculous that last pa- and even and in, in, we even hear it at the beginning of the chapter and it's something that like i said we don't know a lot about it but it's obviously something that is haunting uh aaron and, and kind of everything he does in terms of his brother so that's it, it's definitely it seems like a repressed memory of something to do with Euron and this rusted iron hinge. That's when he was locked up. I forget the location. Was it Lannisport? Where were they when he was locked up? Aaron drowned and was captured by by Stannis, I want to say. Or Stannis' fleet near Lannisport. And that's when Euron slash Vic and company came in and torched everyone. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's a ton of, of theories out there, which I hesitate to put weight on them just because of the nature of it, but that Euron molested Aaron. And I think that some people subscribe to that, some people don't, but I think that that's a fairly popular one as well. Well, it kind of comes out in that Forsaken chapter of what, what, what it's referring to. It, it seems very explicit that Euron molested Aaron and his and the other two brothers as well. I need to read these sample chapters. Yeah. Damn yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it, it, it becomes much more explicit in my mind that it confirms what the, the rusted iron hinge is. But for those who haven't read it, it's, it's an interesting topic to think about is the repressed memories of Aaron Greyjoy and and how that affects his outlook of Euron and how he's so fearful of of his older brother. And it provides a little bit more context as to why he's so fearful. It's not just because he's a magic being, but because he's he's also he's he's not just magical evil, but he's also normal evil as mm-hmm. well. He established a cruel dominance over his siblings at an early age. Yep. We still hyped up on him. That's <laughs> cheerful. <laughs> Why can't we just be battling Joffrey at the Blackwater again? <laughs> I know. You fought bravely. <laughs> it's a slow progression. You know, you go Joffrey, Reek, Euron. Joffrey, Reek, Ramsey, Euron. Mix some of the assholes out of East End. Yep. Plus the White Walkers. Let's not forget them. Prologue forward. Speaking of assholes, there's a bunch of assholes in this Davos chapter. That was an expert transition, <laughs> yeah, sir. that was... <laughs> <laughs> 
Today's episode of Game of Bones is sponsored by GlassesUSA.com. GlassesUSA.com is the leading online retailer for prescription glasses in the United States since 2009. They cut out the middleman, so prices can be up to 70% off the retail price. Plus, you can shop online from the comfort of your home without compromise on quality or service. GlassesUSA.com offers over 2,500 styles of eyeglasses and sunglasses, including designer frames like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Tom Ford, and Armani. Their lenses and coatings are the same high quality as retail, and their glasses are professionally produced at state-of-the-art laboratories. They also make multifocal lenses and accommodate high prescriptions. Using GlassesUSA.com's virtual mirror, you can try on any pair of frames and see what they look like on your face by uploading your photo. I myself am receiving our pair of complimentary glasses. Ordered a pair that looked most like the Boy Wizard Harry Potter's, <laughs> and you can too. At GlassesUSA.com, glasses start at only $48 with free prescription lenses. But for our listeners, GlassesUSA.com is offering 55% off your first pair of frames, including free basic prescription lenses when you use the code GAME55 at checkout or go to GlassesUSA.com slash GAME. That is a pair of glasses for $48 with free lenses. You can find it at GlassesUSA.com slash GAME or use our offer code GAME55 at checkout. Some exclusions apply. So check out the site for full details. This Davos chapter, for those of you listening and who didn't follow along with us, I have um, notes that are just damn and then damn again and then damn again again. And then it goes on for a good handful of agains. This chapter was zinger filled Davos face to face with Wyman Manderley, a full court and all the majesty of White Harbor. There's also a lot of interesting politics happening in this chapter, which we can get into a little bit more detail, but just the inner workings of what Manderley is trying to accomplish and what Davos is trying to accomplish and what Stannis is trying to accomplish, what the Freys are trying to accomplish. There's just 10,000 different motives in here. And they're, I feel like, hanging on a very delicate balance. And I love Davos in this chapter because he makes a comment somewhere along the way that he didn't come this far to not just sit, hold his tongue. Like he's just going to say what he wants to say and say what he knows to be true because why else would he have come all this way? And I think that it makes for some really, really great dialogue and some crazy claims that are made. And that's the, Davos is pretty bold, but the phrase are extremely bold too with the things that they, they say happened at the Red Wedding. <laughs> you mean the magical story about the magical wolves? <laughs> Well, the confirmed the confirmed story about how Rob Stark turned into a wolf oh, yeah, and then killed confirmed. Confirmed. And, and how all of the <laughs> really men had the mark of the wolf on them transformed as well. And then Rob Stark was died like a dog. That that was that was a pretty bold stroke on the part of uh, Rhaegar Frey. Man. Honestly, Rhaegar Frey, if that would have happened, that would have been a red wedding. If they would have just burst into wolves and the glorious phrase saved the day, what utter horse <laughs> shit! <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, because there's probably about a ninety nine. Point nine percent chance that good old Rhaegar would be standing there right now if they had all turned into wolves, right? Am I right? Absolutely. This this might get a little bit towards my own, but uh, the the whole thing just takes Davos back. Like he's he's so just shocked at the at the uh, the the enormity of the lies that they're telling. But I love this line where he says, "Where the man was smirking as he told the tale, Davos <laughs> wanted to peel his lips mm-hmm. off with a knife. Sir, may I have your name, Sir Jared of House Frey." Jared of House Frey, I name you liar. I thought it was just kind of like mic drop moment there for Davos. In a room. If we're doing mic drop moments, then I'm doing my first damn. I have not come as a petitioner, Davos replied. 
I have a string of titles too. Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Narrow Sea, Hand of the King. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like he rolls up knowing full well that nobody is excited to see him there. And um, that what he makes at the very beginning of the chapter, making this comment that he had learned to read men's faces long before he learned how to read. And so he knows exactly what is going on in the room, yet he still says all of these things that's it's 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 a really it's just like this is probably one of my top five chapters in all of a song of ice and fire just because of the dialogue like when george is on like a, a role where he's like burning through dialogue like he can write it like few other fiction writers it's like he wrote this in five minutes like this yeah, was stream it, of consciousness mm-hmm. stream of consciousness and it's just so good back and forth because you know the line where you, your first damn line i love the next line which is that one of the one of the manderly women says Quote, an admiral without ships, hand without fingers, in service to a king without a throne. Is this a knight who comes before us or the answer to a child's riddle? Uh, also another mic drop moment right there. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Zingers, one after the other. I mean, I just happened to cross one here, too, while I was scrolling through the chapter from Sir Jared. Some men cry when slicing onions, but I have never had that weakness. <laughs> yeah. Should we just read the whole chapter? Yeah, yeah, dramatic reading. Yeah, I think that would. Well, if that's the case, better. we need to go back and just just quote Euron's stump speech, or even Vic's stump speech. Their speeches were so good. Asha's stump speech was so good. Yeah, you got to read those. The, the thing, the, the thing about this chapter, that the one thing that kind of boggles my mind, and this is not to not to shit on the show or anything like that, but why this wasn't included in the show just boggles my mind because it's it's, it's all made right for there. TV dialogue. Yeah, it's right, right there. Gothic. You've got Wyman Manderly stuffing his face in his three-person wide chair. What does that mean? You know, and, and if you look at this chapter, at least for the sake of our conversation now, we all know what happens after this. So there's two ways to really talk about it because there's two different actions. This is two different atmospheres going on here. One is the one that we know if we don't know the future, and the other is looking back and seeing the kind of gamesmanship that's going on in this room. It's masterful. Oh, yeah. It's it's really, it's really good. And I, the thing... Not to get too spoilery past this chapter, but the thing I love about it is how these these Northmen, Wyman Manderley and his family, I, I guess technically they're not Northmen because they, they came from the Reach originally, but these Northmen, for because they've been there for a thousand years, are, are very crafty when a lot of those attributes have been attributed to Lannisters or Tyrells or or Targaryens, but these guys, they're very smart in the, the kind of the game that they're playing, especially Wyman Manderley and his, and his kin are, are really, really good. Um, and it's good when you go back and you read this chapter and you're like, oh, this makes a lot of sense why he's saying these things, why he's ordering this course of action mm-hmm. to be done by yeah. his, by his men. Um, it, it's, it's crafty. It's, it's intelligent. It's smart. And I really like that George doesn't make, the good guys always be the dumb guys like this. Wyman Manderley is a very smart guy and he's playing a really good game here. Yeah, he's definitely playing his cards right. How do you guys think that Willem Manderley played into all of this? Oh, was she planted gosh. or was this just a variable that hurt their sort of neutral position? I think she's a wild card, really. I, I think she she said she spoke her mind when whenever when both when the other players were, were playing their parts. Um, but she was like, how I guess she wasn't briefed in because she was what eight or nine years old, or was she eleven? I can't remember. She's young. She's that's young. all I remember. Yeah, I think she was yeah, eight. Totally, and and I think that she was probably given a role to play, but she's she's young, so she probably had heard enough. I mean, she she has a lot of Liana Mormont in her. I that's that's what too. I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> you can't did they help it. adapt? Yeah, 
Go Can on, you Micah, imagine sorry. the two of them traveling around, just like taking everyone down? <laughs> My spinoff show. I, mean, I feel like it was it, you probably in the next chapter or two, and because I can't remember uh, fully, but uh, you know, we're gonna find out that you know she she probably spoil uh, almost ruined Wyman Manderley's plans uh, if she would have been allowed to speak uh, just a little bit longer. But um, you know, coming into the chapter, you to me, when Davos first steps foot into this room and he sees the phrase, he's got to imagine that he his cause is going to be lost in, in the sense that there's no way that, that Wyman Manderley can agree to what he needs with the phrase literally sitting there. That's why he asks to speak one-on-one. And going back to the point that was made about just how crafty Wyman is, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that while this is all going on, there's sort of this, this subplot that, that, that is going to play itself out. And yeah, I, I I mean, because this is the first time you're reading this chapter. You think Davos is done, right? I mean, right. Th- this is one of those moments where, you know, you're maybe you flip the pages ahead, just you know, see if he's got <laughs> another chapter. But uh, yeah, it's it's you know, it's one of those you know, Tyrion falls into the uh, black water. Yeah, yeah, yeah except for they happened back to back. Like that did not happen very long ago, and so at this point in the story, you have That's two true. characters who. We love very much who we don't know what their fate is. That's that's a stressful thing. Yeah, and this is the last Davos chapter for a while. But it, to me, like it, this 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 chapter makes me love Davos as as a point of view character, but also love him like as on a personal level too, because the amount of courage that Davos displays this this essentially unlearned man who's slowly learning his letters um, goes into a room where he thinks he's it's full of enemies, and you know from our perspective reading this chapter, he's not wrong. He has one ally, which is an eight-year-old girl, but he still makes his case for Stannis all the same. Like that's the amount of courage that it takes for Davos to do that is is uh, un- unparalleled almost in the series. He's basically speaking his own death or uh, or or the or imprisonment or or whatnot. So he's it's doing it's his really, duty. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's a very Davos Stannis thing for him to do, and uh, he doesn't have anything to offer them really. I mean, they're they're asking all these questions about what kind of castles does he hold, and how many men have been declared for him, and and Davos doesn't have any real answer other than he's the true king. You know, I I believe in him. He's real. Do. Yeah, you know, he's and he he's he's the guy, and and so I think that to add to your point, Jeff, like not only is he. It just it just adds to the level of courage and devotion that he has to to be in here in the situation that he's in without really that much to back it up with. I, I love how he actually puts it how he puts it because yeah he doesn't have anything to back it up, but he says um, he's trying to figure out what he can offer. He's like oh well you know you have to do your duty, and when that doesn't go over well, he says death. There will be death. I your lordship lost the son at the red wedding. I lost four upon the black water, and why? Because the Lannisters stole the throne. Go to King's Landing and look on Tommen with your own eyes, if you doubt me. A blind man could see it. What does Stannis offer you? Vengeance. Vengeance for my sons and yours, for your husbands and your fathers and your brothers. Vengeance for your murdered lord, your murdered king, your butchered princes. Vengeance. I just love that, the Such way that he, he speaks yeah. 
so directly and it's so refreshing really for, for especially for readers that don't have to read through, you know, a little finger of ours, Renly, Ned Stark, trying to figure out what's going on with these kind of manipulators and, and, and players. Cause Davos is just extremely direct and it's so refreshing in the narrative itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. On the flip side, Lady Leona, speaks a pretty strong case against Stannis and it's easy for us to be romanticized with Davos because he's the man and he has honest thoughts and honest feelings and like you said it's a it's a relief because he speaks from the heart and we know his motivations and we know that now specifically in the face of danger he still has the the gall the audacity and the courage to to stand up against what he believes and what they who follow his king believe is the right thing to do to stand against bad people who are claiming allegiance to who are giving their allegiance to a king who is false but when leona speaks about melisandre and the kinds of things that they do and she doesn't even go into the complete details of the of the suffering that they've put on other people and the blood sacrifice and the blood magic that they use and the fact that you know you know what i mean like she represents something that is very foreign to the kind of people that live in the north or who at least give allegiance to the starks being so rooted in the ways of the seven and and a lot of people geographically speaking rooted in the ways of the old gods praying to weirwood trees i just found that that was the sort of the achilles heel in all this apart from them being totally out of power and being surrounded by phrase they couldn't have said yes if they wanted to they wouldn't have said yes if they wanted to clearly but when they started speaking about Stannis and the kind of people that surround him and the kind of ways that he's claiming his throne, I think that's when I was like, hmm, scratching my head. Mm-hmm. And Tafus is like, no, 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 not me, though. Yeah, but he couldn't really defend it. He was like, yeah. I know that's bullshit, but I don't follow it. Yeah. Right. And and Wyman really just, yeah, I, I thought sort of the nail in the coffin was when he's going through and he's describing all the different things that, you know, Tywin and Roose Bolton and the phrase offer him in terms of like the current political climate and the only thing that Davos can really respond by saying is vengeance (laughs) (laughs) well like the chance to do your duty that's what Stannis offers at the end of the day you know it's protection of White Harbor protection of the Manderley family you know not being bothered from the warden of the north you know being able to continue on the Manderley lineage by wedding with the phrase, whether you like the family or not, you know, these are things that are so important as, you know, the, the current landscape exists. Right. And, and so I think that, you know, even if Manderley is not working on something behind the scenes to me, this, this is as good a case, as good a argument, as as you can expect, and Davos has nothing to offer, and and Manderly too has other concerns than just backing Stannis or getting vengeance as well. His his heir, his only his surviving son, is a, is a captive of the Lannisters, and he needs to have a son back because that's if if his son dies, that's the end of his line right there. When he when Manderly dies, then and his son is also dead because he backs the wrong king, then mm-hmm. it's it's. It's curtains for for House Manderly, or maybe not for House Manderly, but at least for House Manderly properly proper. Um, so he has to he he does have other concerns than simply backing the rightful claimant to the Iron Throne that extend beyond the events that 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 occurred at the Red Wedding. So, despite uh, Davos's many attempts to convince Wyman Manderly to 
join Stannis and his cause. It seems as if Davos is not going to make it out of White Harbor anytime soon. Treated to one of the most blunt in- chapter endings. Yes. We can always hope for the best, for the best for Davos, though. We could. We can flip ahead. <laughs> Take this creature to the wolf's den and cut off his head and hands. I want them brought to me before I sup. I shall not be able to eat a bite until I see the smuggler's head upon a spike with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. <laughs> oh, poor Stannis. And then I love how, like, literally right under that it says reek. Yeah. So, is that your own or just a powerful <laughs> statement? No, no, it's not my own. Okay. I'm going to have to give it to Willa. Love it. For channeling her inner Liana Mormont and making sure her family remembers who they truly swear their allegiance to. Mm, that was well my own. I just, I love that whole monologue that she gives after she's told that she knows nothing. She's, as she says, I know about the promise. Maester Theomore, tell them a thousand years before the conquest, a promise was made and oaths were sworn in the wolf's den before the old gods and the new. When we were sore beset and friendless, hounded from our homes and in peril of our lives, the wolves took us in and nourished us and protected us against our enemies. The city is built upon the land they gave us. In return, we swore that we should always be their men. Stark men. That's so good. Pretty That's what I wanted stuff. to make my own yeah. too, because I just love mm-hmm. that paragraph. My own goes to Willa as well. They killed Lord Eddard and Lady Catelyn and King Rob, she said. He was our king. He was brave and good, and the phrase murdered him. If Lord Stannis will avenge him, we should join Lord Stannis. Hell yeah. Clean it so up, did we all give our yeah, did we all give our own to Willa yep. this, this chapter? Not so bad. <laughs> How could you Who can not blame really? us? I mean, yeah. Come on. So the True. real question is where your hearts guide you and owns for the next chapter, because you could go black or white or gray or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give mine to Euron. Uh, for his, where he's he's talking and he's giving his speech. And he says, crow's eye, you call me. Well, who has a keener eye than the crow? After every battle, the crows come in their hundreds and their thousands to feast upon the fallen. A crow can espy death from afar. And I say that all of Westeros is dying. Those who follow me will feast to the end of their days. Mm, damn. Yep. That's so good. I, uh, I'm also going to get my own to your own and another portion of a speech that he gives, um, at the very end of the chapter when Asha says, um, what does he say? Your own c- c- compares himself to Aegon the Conqueror and Asha says, um, Aegon Targaryen conquered Westeros with dragons and Euron says, and so shall we. Your own Greyjoy promised. He's talking about dragons and that's pretty crazy so own to that there's a uh, a seagull in this chapter that reminded me hearken to a raven hanging out in a certain certain perch north of most things in westeros i thought that the gulls mm. operated kind of in a way that reminded me of ravens and yeah it fit the geographic context of the culture and i thought it was a really nice touch but i have to give my own to asha Greyjoy for putting that collar on her head like a crown before she invited everyone to talk about her queen's moot <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I have to, uh, I'll give an honorary own to the mention of Red Rain, another Valyrian steel forged sword. Mm-hmm. That's a cool, yeah, it's because cool. Because there's only so many left, right? I mean, it's somebody's going to have to go hunting these things at some point, no? I think so. We can smelt down Euron's armor later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. But my, my own for the chapter uh, does go to Asha. Um, when she said, we need to take a lesson from the young wolf who won every battle and lost all. And 
a lot of both of these chapters I thought had a lot of throwbacks uh, to the Starks. And now for the listener owns, beginning with Heathen King on Twitter. Own again to Euron for orchestrating all of this. Victarion and Asha split the vote, conservative and liberal. Euron swoops in amid the propaganda against Rob Stark and own to Davos for smelling bullshit and calling it out. What would a fray know of honor? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I would pay to see Liam Cunningham say that. Ooh, me too. Yeah, that would be nice. Next up, we have Brienne of Tarth at Beauty Brienne on Twitter, who says, Drowned Man owned to Asha for ne- for very nearly defeating Uncle Meathead with pine cones, pebbles, and knowing how to count to 10. <laughs> that was a good line. That should have been my own. <laughs> and then next, uh, Davos owned goes to Davos for not peeling off Jared Frey's lips like he wanted. Who hasn't been there, right? Wilson Pruitt says, quote, an admiral without ships, a hand without fingers, in service to a king without a throne. Is this a knight who comes before us or the answer to a child's riddle? Lady Leona playing her part. Ouch. That's good. Really good. Uh, Julie Harris Green at Inky Pages says, Own goes to, for the drown man goes to Euron, who owns everyone with that damned horn. And then uh, she also goes on for the Davos own to say that Jared Frey, that rather that Davos owns Jared Frey. Hopefully Davos will get to peel that smirk off of him. Oh, wouldn't that be justice? Jared. (laughs) And fitting at Scheming Sailor tweets at us on Twitter, tweets at us, what would a Frey know of honor? Davos owns all of House Frey. At Unloused on Twitter, the drowned man Owen goes to Asha. Turnips should have won it for her, but those thrice damned Ironborn chose Euron's gold instead. And Davos Owen to Willamanderly stands up for what is right and gives us a history lesson in the process. It's good stuff. Next, we have some emails. The first one is from Laura D. Who says, Davos Own goes to Rob Stark and his northern men for turning into werewolves at the Red Wedding. <laughs> yes. And then quotes, when Stark changed into a wolf, his northmen did the same. The mark of the beast was on them all. Wargs birth other wargs with a bite. It is well known. Oh, well. What a chapter. And then Laura's own for Drowned Man says, Own goes to Naga's bones for endurance. Only Naga's bones endured to remind... The Ironborn of all the wonder that had been. Uh, and then another email from Matt Marilla, who says, My Davos 3 own goes, goes to Davos's excellent rebuke, Sir Jared of House Frey. I name you liar. And then his drowned man own goes to Euron's Hellhorn and its effect on Euron's poor Bongrel. And he says he's been listening to you guys since you started Game of Thrones and then he loves loves you all. He loves you too, Jeff. Matt loves you well, too. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks guys for writing into our show and sending in owns. This has been a good pair of chapters. We appreciate it. I'm surprised all of your owns didn't go to Miss Young Manderly, but that's okay. All of ours did, so we got it covered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you would like to send in your owns for the upcoming chapters, you can do so in any number of ways, including a few of which we read today. You can tweet at us at Game of Owns, scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or shoot us an email like Laura and Matt at contact at Game of And Jeff, thanks for joining us today. You're going to be with us again, if I'm correct, on Tyrion 6 inside oh, of yes. this feast. So why Tyrion 6? It's, it's my favorite chapter in all of A Dance of Dragons. It might be my favorite chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, the way that George writes it is really clever 
and complex and it's all in the context of a board game so it's even even more interesting that way well thanks for coming on yeah we can't yeah, wait guys, to have, you, have you back on with us yeah well thank you very much for having me it's nice talking to someone who helped us put this reading order together because we're kind of just shouting in an empty room most of the time at each other but it's nice to have another person come in and be like oh this is a lot of fun <laughs> it is it, it really and I, and I love reading these chapters with you alongside of you guys and then getting to participate once in a while is, is, is a real uh, joy of joy joy for me um i just thank you guys for having me on every once in a while and we'll do it again sometime soon It'd be awesome well we love having you um if you want to follow along with us you can head to a feastwithdragons.com and next time we're reading the queen maker and brianne four out of a feast for crows so check out a feastwithdragons.com and follow along with us and if you're not supporting or following along with our patreon feed at patreon.com slash you you're missing out on some true gems our conversations on our other podcast, The Squad of Ice and Fire, Hannah's favorite podcast, some updates in the process <laughs> of things <laughs> behind the scenes <laughs> as we're creating Rewatch the Throne. And of course, the the usual snapshots, selfies that Micah makes either in the White House, bowling at the Truman Alley, <laughs> or most recently courtside with McLovin from Superbad. Yeah, that's uh, that was a good shot. I'm glad you guys uh, enjoyed it. But uh you know, speaking of work, it is a uh, it's a new year, and with new year comes new opportunities. And um, particularly with my job and what I do when I'm not recording uh, podcasts, and with this new role at work, I'm taking on uh, new responsibilities, and uh, that just uh, takes up uh, a good amount of time. My time is is being taken up by a lot more responsibility there, and with that. Um, going to need to step aside from doing podcasting uh, for the time being. I've talked about this a lot with Zach and Hannah, and it's something that's tough for me because you know I always want to be able to commit 100% um, to anything I do, uh, which obviously includes the show, to commit 100% to these other hosts, Jeff included, um, and, and to the listeners. And, you know, I've Love doing this um, for what five years now, um, and and a lot of hundreds of episodes, and you know it's it's going to be different, but um, for right now, like I said, it's just something that uh, I need to do. Mike is a jet setter now, hanging out with celebrities, you know, like McLovin. <laughs> the only Mike is you have to promise us though that you will befriend all these people and invite them into our inner circle. Yeah, well, I've, I'll just give him your phone number. Okay, thank that you. works. <laughs> but look, like I said, I mean, I've I've loved doing this and, you know, there's there's a reason why we all came together the way that we did and we we talk as passionately as excuse me, as passionately as we do about it. Um, you know, it's because it's something that we care about at the end of the day and we enjoy the conversation that we have amongst ourselves and and with all of you out there and it's been it's been a fun ride. So we're going to have quite a lot of feasting left to do in this reading order. And then obviously we have the convention approaching and we have rewatched the throne, which is steadily underway. We've published our fourth episode there and the kind of stuff that we're picking up on season one of which we've never been able to do on the podcast before has been a really, really rewarding part of that process. So it's all kind of full steam ahead with winds of winter approaching. And like I said, being this deep in our reread and, uh, yeah, things are really, really busy right now in the a Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones world. Yeah, you, you'll be missed, Mike. I mean, I've really enjoyed, I mean, I've been listening to you guys now for 
I, I think about three, two and a half or three years now. And I think I've, I've really enjoyed your takes on, on everything. You were the one of the ones that was unspoiled or you were the ones that was spoiled going into the spoiled, books, right? Yeah. But I, I think I really appreciate that. I think like you put a lot of care into, you know, keeping your, your friends unspoiled that hadn't read the books yet. And I think it's really cool how you did it. I, I could see things that you were hinting at Oh yeah, because I had read the books, but I, I thought it was really cool and a, and, a, and a really cool way to approach it. And, you know, it's... We'll be sad to see you go for the time being. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So in 2017, we plan on creating episodes as normal. It's been a little bit looser than usual recently because we've been trying to operate around all these schedule changes and obviously the holidays and then the new year came into effect and um, everyone's busy. But between the con, the new book coming and the new season approaching, um, we're still going to be here. Game of Owns is still going to be charging along in this reread and everything else that's coming. What is Dead May Never Die? What is Dead May Never Die? What is Dead May Never Die? Michael, we hope that you will come and join us and come hang out with us still when you when you get a chance as we roll into all the exciting stuff you have for 2017. So, Like the princess in the tower, like the wind blown, <laughs> like the, the, the Griffin maker. reborn, the sperm <laughs> suitor, the ugly little girl, Victorian one. I'm just saying. The Forsaken. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Forsaken. Oh, good I Lord. actually have to read that chapter now, by the way, because yeah. I, I didn't know. I knew about it, but I didn't. Because... This is going off track a little bit, but because uh, um, he read from it, right? He, mm-hmm. Did he yeah. actually publish it somewhere or is it just the audio is online? Somewhere. Uh, the audio, there, there are summaries. There are summaries online and I believe there is a transcript of what he read that's online. So like we said, we'll be back with the Queenmaker and Brienne Four from A Feast for Crows next time. And then we'll also be over at Rewatch the Throne and we're on season one, episode five. So if you want to join us on either of those, 